Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On the first segment of today's episode, we'll be talking about Friday Flicks, a weekly screening series hosted by the New Haven Parks Department that brings different family-friendly movies to New Haven's many parks and green spaces every Friday night of the summer. I'll be joined by New Haven Parks Director Becky Bombero to talk about the series, upcoming movies on this year's schedule, and the joys and challenges of bringing outdoor movie screenings to nearly every neighborhood in the city. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel and WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman for a review of Wiener Dog, the new oddball comedy from director Todd Solons that loosely follows a dashing from misfit owner to misfit owner, each of whom find comfort, friendship, and an inescapable reminder of death in the dog's tranquil company. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio Becky Bombero. Becky is the Director of Parks, Recreation, and Trees for the City of New Haven. Becky, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure Thanks to have you here. Me. Okay, so here's my first question for you. is a pretty simple one. What is the Friday Flick series? So Friday Flix is a neighborhood movie series um, that visits a different park each week of the summer. Um, there are 12 management teams in the city of New Haven. So we use those boundaries um, to do the 12 movies for the summer. Um, so each movie, uh, each week, we visit a different neighborhood throughout the city um, and show a different film. And what is the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been going to outdoor movie series in various cities over the course of my life for a long time, and, and I so appreciate them. I appreciate the way it encourages me to explore the city that I'm in, uh, to encounter neighborhoods that I might not otherwise go to, to meet people that I may not otherwise know. But when you think about the mission for the series, I imagine that it's more than just plain entertaining movies on pleasant summer nights. And when you think about what makes this series a worthwhile endeavor for the city of New Haven to support, uh, what do you think of? So the mission of the Parks Department is creating community through people, parks, and program. Um, So the program aspect, Movies in the Park, does just that. It um, creates events in each neighborhood to draw neighbors out of their houses to interact with one another. Um, We start every movie night with the recreation bus, um, and that's basically arts and crafts and field games, and it gets um, people out and active. Um, before the film starts. Um, We also use it, um, the previews for the movie is actually just a reel of pictures. This year we're using that to highlight the city's clean cities message. So we have our poster winners, their pictures are being displayed, as well as photos from cleanups from throughout the city. Um, So it brings people together, interact with each other, it gets them into the park and active um, it gets them to interact with one another. And of course, you know, it's always fun to have a free opportunity for uh, entertainment on a Friday night. Now, I'm sure that every parks director has to think about this, but I really associate I mean, your time in this position with a real, a really strong push to encourage members of the community to keep their neighborhoods clean, whether it be that Dwight kind of community cleanup held in May or a really you know, strong push to make sure that people in the city are involved in maintaining the kind of highest standard of, of not just cleanliness, but making the neighborhood an enjoyable place for everyone in the community to be. Um, and I wonder how, I mean, when I think of movies, I often think of a lot of trash that accompanies movies, let alone what happens on the screen. I mean, you have a lot of popcorn, you have people bringing drinks, you have people bringing candy. Um, is there... 
how how do you all plan for that when putting on these series? Are there clearly labeled trash cans all around, or are you just hoping that people are clean in and, and clean out? I've been very impressed by how respectful all of our uh, moviegoers have been of the parks. Um, the mayor's really made cleanliness one of the core missions of the administration and tasked us all with promoting that message citywide. Um, And people do. They clean up after themselves. I mean, intentionally, we don't invite vendors to the movies and have people instead bring picnics with them. And the old mantra, carry out what you carry in. We do provide trash receptacles, but people do clean up after themselves. And it's quite refreshing. Can you tell me and the audience a bit about how these movies were selected? For this summer? So again, it goes back to the community. Uh, We start the planning process for the series very early in the year. So we start um, through conversations with the management teams, helping to select which park in the neighborhood to show the film at um, this year. We try to find a park that is accessible, that has decent parking. um, And if it has electrical, it's an added bonus. But we do have um, light towers that can generate electricity for us to run the films off of. Um, so we, we select the locations and then we produce a ballot um, to engage the community in picking the movies. Um, so Phyllis Miller, um, who works in our registration office, helped to select 100 movies to put on the ballot this year. Um, and it's a great cross section of G and PG films um, from all you know decades and genres. And that uh, ballot went out in March. Um, we used the Park and Rec email list, Facebook page. Um, the city uh, promoted it um, through press release. I think WTNH uh, promoted it. Um, and then people had the opportunity to vote. Um, they could vote for up to 12 films, one for each park. And then based on the top vote getters, those movies were uh, matched with the parks where they were the most popular. Now, we should say that the ser- it being about halfway through the summer now, the series is about halfway through. So it started in early June, and some of the movies that have already played include Ferris Bueller's Day Off, A Bug's Life, Avengers Age of Ultron, and some of the parks that have already been hit are Scantlebury Park, Quinnipiac, John Daniels Field. Um, but there are still plen- plenty more movies to come uh, this summer. But before we get to the movies themselves, do you have any idea of how many people participated in that ballot or how many people ultimately voted for if, if you don't have an exact number that's more than okay kind of springing that on oh uh, we get a couple hundred votes uh voters um with with 12 movies each it represents a lot of votes and how i mean how does this this year's series and how it came together um in how many people participated in in choosing it even in how it's running thus far how does this compare to last year or other years which you've been the parks director for, or even um, even before you were in this position. Do you know much about the the history of this series in, in the city? So my understanding is there was a Friday flick series on the green years ago, um, and it kind of went away for a while. Uh, the Livable Cities Initiative had revived it within um, the last couple of years, um, and they were again held on the green. There were three to four movies each summer, um, but it wasn't as community a, a community engaged process. Um, so we had a conversation with LCI and took it over and moved it out to the neighborhoods to really help build community. Um, and they partnered with us on the purchase of the screen. Um, the Parks Commission paid for half and the old budget for the LCI films paid for the other half. So now we own the equipment, which makes it a far more affordable series to run. 
Um, and then we leveraged ex existing staff time. The rec bus was already going out every Friday. So we repurposed that. Um, and now um, they join our electrician out um, for the movies each week. Um, so really the only costs for this series are the licenses. Um, so it's the same process that we used last year, which was the first year it was back at Parks. Um, and, uh, the only difference is the equipment showed up the week of the first movie last year. So it was a little stressful. Um, but other than that, it's, uh, been running just as smoothly as last year and perfect weather so far, knock on wood. Do, do licenses cost roughly the same for each movie that you're looking to play? Every movie's a little different. Fortunately, um, through the movie licensing companies, parks and recreation organizations do get a discount off of the normal rental fees, which are much higher than if you went to, well, I'm dating myself by saying Blockbuster, but um, much different than if you went to you know Netflix to rent a video. Um, there are a couple hundred dollars for each film, um, and it depends on the popularity of the film, how long it's been out on video, um, interestingly enough, Ferris Bueller was a lot higher this year because of talks of, of uh, having a remake of the film. So it, the interest in it went up, so the license fee went up. When do you start uh, planning for this series in the year? Is this, you know, come spring, you all start putting together the ballot and reaching out to the different neighborhood management teams? Or is this uh, at the end of the summer you're already thinking about Next year's um, so screening. at the end of the summer, I'll sit down with staff and we'll talk about how each of the locations went this year, if there were challenges with a particular site. Um, and then late, early to midwinter, you know, December or January, we'll start talking to the different neighborhoods about where they'd like to see the film. So I think roughly, I think six, six of the movies have played thus far. And we have the seventh tomorrow, The Wiz playing at Troop Field in Edgewood. Uh, when you when you're thinking about that end of summer conversation about what were some of the challenges and difficulties of particular locations, how have you felt about the screenings that have taken place thus far? You've mentioned the good weather, but you've also mentioned that some of the parks have easier access to electricity than others. I mentioned there are other challenges that come with these different green spaces. But one of the things I'm you know, so inspired by with the series is that it does hit upon so many different neighborhoods in the city and so many different types of green spaces in parks. I mean, I'm afraid the only one I've been to thus far was Back to the Future on the Goth Street Park into Gale Field. And it was it was wonderful. It was a part of the park I'd never been to before. It was very dark. It was very flat. There are a lot of people out there. There were probably 40 or 50 people. And we should say the screens are these big inflatable, kind of like a, a jumping castle at an amusement park, except instead of something for kids to jump in, uh, there is a screen. Uh, but how have the screenings gone thus far? Have there been any challenges, any location-specific challenges that you've run into? Uh, we haven't actually had any location-specific challenges. Uh, did have a little bit more difficulty last week than previous weeks because both the fire department and police department's light towers needed uh, some repairs. So we had to use a regular generator, which is a little bit louder, but it was still a smooth process. So... That's why we do tend to try to pick parks that have a hardwired electrical to plug into. Great. And looking forward to the next six, I mean, some of the parks that are going to be, well, you know, maybe I'll just quickly run through the schedule. We'll post this on the independent as well. But the next screening is tomorrow, July 22nd. We've got The Wiz at Troop Field. Then we have Finding Nemo on July 29th at Trowbridge Square. Uh, Aladdin on August 5th at Nathan Hale Park. Jurassic World on August 12th at Lincoln Bassett. 
Greece on August 19th at Worcester Square Park, and then Inside Out wrapping up the summer on August 26th at Winslow Augustine. Actually, Winslow Augustine was the only park I hadn't heard of looking at this list before. Where, where is Winslow Augustine? So Winslow Augustine is up in the West Hills neighborhood by uh, Brookside um, next door to Catherine Brennan's school. It's uh, the field where Pop Warner plays their home games. Oh, great. Excellent. So, I mean, hearing that list of parks just kind of rattled off by me, is, are there any... Anything that you are particularly apprehensive about with that list? A- any challenges you foresee, or should it be pretty similar to the first six? It should be pretty similar to the first six. Actually, um, all but one of these parks has electric on site, so it will be a little bit smoother. Excellent. And one of the, and this show is a weekly show in which I interview people in the city who, who make movies, who teach about movies, who do interesting things around movies. So I'm really interested in you know, talking a lot about movies and often the, you know, like artistic merits of movies and the history of movies. And one of the things I so appreciate about these um, open air screenings and cities is that I learn about so many new movies that I, I never heard. I was, I'm thinking back to a time that I spent uh, in Berlin a couple of years ago. And over the summer, they have this series called Freiluftkino, which is just open air cinema. And they set up, uh, I guess the, the city sets up screens in the most unexpected of places, in alleys, and parks, on the beach, in warehouses. And it's not just family-friendly fare. It's anything and everything. And I remember learning about so many different movies through that experience. Um, it seems like this series is very much pegged towards family-friendly fare. And this is as much about the neighborhoods as it is about encouraging people to learn about movies. But is there anything in the... I mean, is there something special about orienting you know the series around movies rather than anything else that you could think of that would get people out to the parks or is this just one more kind of tool in your kit that you think you know this is a way to engage people doesn't really matter what it is movies or anything else just get them outside exactly it's just one of many strategies to get people out enjoying their neighborhood and interacting with each other taking pride in the spaces that we have to offer um, and getting active is there a space that you're particularly interested in seeing a movie played at later this summer? I mean, of the spaces that we have to look forward to, not just the the movie that's being played, whether you like it or not, but is there a space that you're eager to see a, a movie set up at? I think some of the um, spaces that we haven't visited before, so Trowbridge Square, uh, Fort Hale, Winslow Augustine, were not part of the series last year. So just getting out into those areas and engaging people there. I mean, obviously, we visited those neighborhoods previously, but this is an opportunity to be in a little different part because our neighborhoods sometimes are pretty large. And this way we engage, you know, this uh, so people have the opportunity to walk to a movie. What would you, uh, how would you categorize this series as a success at the end of the summer? Like what, what things will, will come to mind to help you believe that this was worthwhile endeavor that it went really well it's something that you want to um, keep in the budget for next year what, what are some uh, kind of indicators of success for this series for you um, so success in the series for us uh, we measure a couple of ways one attendance at the movies themselves two is the feedback we receive from um, participants and then third is just our social media hits how many people have liked the postings or RSVP to the events and engaged with us in that medium which is a great way in order for us to measure metrics and penetration 
last year's series also put on 12 movies. Is that right? So w- what kind of feedback, if any, did you get after last year? Oh, we had terrific feedback. Um, great attendance. I think our largest crowd was about 300 people for Casablanca at Worcester Square. Um, n- we had over, I think, 11,000 hits on uh, our first posting, which was actually the independent article that Paul did uh, announcing the series. So I think feedback has been positive. Uh, people were looking forward to it when uh, we announced it again this year. So it's really encouraging to see how people engage and um, how involved they become in the process and recruiting people to come out, you know, just reposting the events, tagging their friends. Do you have any sense of attendance thus far this year? Has it been on par with the last year? Um, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I know based on the movies that I've had the opportunity to go out and see, crowds have been just as big. Um, I expect the next couple... um, of movies to be extremely well attended. I think The Wiz already had over 100 people interested or RSVP'd on the Facebook invite. So it should be a big crowd tomorrow night. Excellent. And of the movies themselves, I guess the ones that haven't played yet, or even the ones that have played, are there any favorites of yours in here? Oh, I can't pick favorites. (laughs) Or how about ones that you are... We talked about the park that you're most interested in visiting, ones that you haven't been to uh, in, in previous years for this series, but any particular movies of the remaining six that you are eager to catch up on or maybe see for the first time? Oh, well, I've seen all of the movies that are going to air except for Inside Out, um, but if, unfortunately I will be out of town that night, so I won't be able to catch it. Uh, well, well, next year. We'll have to catch it up. Um, well, Becky Bombero, thank you so much for coming by the studio to talk about the Friday Flick series. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Becky Becky is the Director of Parks, Recreations, and Trees for the City of New Haven, and she is also the supervisor of the Friday Flick series, where the Parks Department brings a series of movies to different parks throughout the city over the course of the summer, and the next one is tomorrow, July 22nd at 8.30 p.m. Is that the starting time? for? It's the starting time of the film. Approximately, we uh, hit play when it's dark enough to see the screen. Um, But if show up early, get a good spot, uh, bring a picnic, and come... uh, play some field games with us. Excellent. We'll be there. Thank you very much, Becky. Okay, coming up next is a review of the new movie Wiener Dog. But first, let's hear a short song by Ellison Jackson.
Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Wiener Dog is a new dark comedy from... <laughs> that was Wiener Dog. He's in the studio surprise. with his folks. Uh, you know, I was hoping to reveal that surprise a bit later on, but there you have it. So, <laughs> so, we, so Wiener Dog offers a, a series of vignettes that feature otherwise unrelated characters who share two things in common. A brief encounter with a chestnut brown dashund, wide-eyed and docile, and a paralyzing preoccupation with death. Over the course of the movie, Silence tracks the dog from misfit owner to misfit owner, from sickly suburban child to awkward veterinarian to suicidal screenwriter, lingering each step of the way on the confusion, fear, resignation, and malaise that have come to define each character's existence. Occasionally, the dog inspires a momentary respite from this bleak bewilderment, but Silence's movie is not necessarily one that finds salvation in the presence of a cute, innocent pup. Alan, I think this movie is most successful when it challenges the audience to think about how we talk about death with other people, how we confront the specter of our own mortality, and where those two death-oriented conversations, both within and without, intersect. So after watching Wiener Dog, did you find yourself enlivened by a new, clear-sighted approach to understanding death? Or were you longing for nothing more than a slow-motion pillow fight with a cute little dog who hopefully won't get sick and crap all over the carpet? What I was looking for is the closest bar to the Criterion Bowtie cinemas. Um, but that's a very, that's a very good summary. I mean, it is, it is, it is really a kind of, um, charm bracelet of, uh, mordant, uh, contemplations about death. And, um, the problem is, is that, is, is that, um, uh, death is obviously one of the main subjects of all time of all art, but it shouldn't leave you sort of, uh, suicidal and depressed. Um, there should be, I don't know, I mean, I'm prescribing there should be, there must be. It is what it is. The problem with this movie is that uh, it it, um, uh, it kind of opens a, opens a subject, takes you into it, but I don't think it has the courage of its initial conviction to stick with a single story, and hence the, uh, uh, the dachshund uh, moves us from place to place, and it's... Um, you know the 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 dachshund dog is the subject as it were from from character to character but but it 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 doesn't um it, it you know it's a it's a young person's uh, if i may uh, be so bold as to say that it's a young person's uh dealing with death or 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 somebody who really um uh didn't want to stick with a single story and see where it went it seems to me that that's the problem so that it becomes like, what are you going to show me next? Who are going to be the next, uh, after Greta Gerwig, who's going to be the next zombie affectless creature? And, uh, you know, you sort of, some movies you just need a drink or to take a shower. I'm afraid this was one of those. You know, I I have a bad habit of... Uh, clean up the mess, as we say. <laughs> with, the, with the dog. <laughs> Don't feed him the granola bar. Of of thinking too much about a movie afterwards and coming up with reasons why I liked it when act, while actually watching it. I really didn't enjoy it. But one thing that I thought this movie did really well was not so much uh, contemplating death, but contemplating the way that people talk about death and think about death. And I and I think that it, it wasn't just about the way that young people approach death. I think that we had a whole spectrum. And I think that the progression, the kind of narrative progression, if there is one of the story, is from 
the way that young people, especially kids, begin to conceptualize death, perhaps through the understanding of the sickness or abuse of a pet. Um, going on to the, the last story with the Ellen Burstyn character about a woman right on the doorstep of death, a woman afraid that she has not lived her life to the fullest, who is you know almost bedridden with regrets. But the way that the contemplation of death goes from being a conversation in the first scene between a young child asking his parents question after question about death to being an, a fraught internal monologue at the end where there's no conversation except going on you know, inside of the mind of the person who feels as if she's about to die and is panicked about that. And I think that that is, I mean, death is obviously a very important part of the human condition, but it's also a great you know, source of contemplative art. And I think that conversations about death is an interesting uh, kind of sideways approach to the subject because it's as much about the absurdity and inadequacy of communication around this subject as it is about, you know, the existential questions of what it means to die and how that should affect the way that we live. But Lucy, you walked into this movie about halfway through. I did. And within about I, ten, I within about ten minutes, enough. you said, "I find this insufferable." I said, so "I find maybe this insufferable." I wanted to leave. But I'm, are you? Do you hear what I'm saying though about communication? About did that come through to you at all when you were watching the movie, or not? Yeah, really? sure. It it was fine. Um. I'm, I'm, I mean, this this was a perfectly adequate movie that, uh, yeah, that that for me, I, I guess, just didn't go beyond that. There was nothing transcendent about this. I wouldn't particularly recommend it to a friend. I don't think it it was the worst, whatever, 80 minutes, 40, 50 minutes of my life or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I do think it. Uh, I don't I don't want to say nails. I th- I think it gets at the fact that any conversation you're going to have around death, which is this mystical thing that has been attacked at every angle in literature and art and film uh, is still going to be a little bit absurd. And the way the director tries to get at that is by making a lot of people, if not every uh, character in the movie, kind of a caricature of themselves. And this is definitely true of, for instance, the film students at what I think is NYU. It's true of uh, a young artist named Fantasy who is so upset when he's compared to Damien Hirst. And of course, like like for me, that was the best, the, just the inside jokes about Damien Hirst and like what an offense to humanity his art is. Um, I, that was like just the most fun part of the, yeah, the th- movie. That's, the, that's the, the real movie lurking in this movie right. is the movie about film school. Hmm. That's the that's kind of the sustained the most sustained sequence it seems to me with uh, varieties of characters from different angles with uh, Danny Schmertz the wonderful Danny uh, uh, Professor Schmertz which what is it was what is that pain. is that German for pain or something pain. yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so you see so you're right that that's the thing to get into and but my but my goodness um, you're you're right. Uh, as you often are, Tom, to, to, to find the best in this film. It does begin with the boy who has leukemia and he's, uh, he's, he's recovering uh, and, his, and Tracy Letts, his, his father, gives him this dog and it ends with, is it Ellen Burstyn? Is that Ellen Burstyn? Who uh, gets, finally gets the dog and she names it Cancer before it gets <laughs> And this dog gets a number of wonderful names throughout. But, but and we he, have Duty, Wiener Dog. Duty, Wiener Dog. But the whole thing is... See where I would take issue with you is that is that um, 
the director has gone into all these different uh, charm charm bracelet uh, you know charms along this charm bracelet of his Morton contemplation, almost with the idea uh, that the subject is exhausted, death is death, you're gonna die. It's depressing as all hell. Let's get a few gallop, pieces of gallows humor about it. And there are a lot different a lot of different ways to deal with death. I mean this. This director's mind, it, 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 it's all the characters and all the sequences, albeit how different they all are from film school to, to you know, fantasy's girlfriend who, that's a wonderful sequence also, Lucy, towards the end where she hits up her grandmother for $10,000. Wonderful, right? A very yeah. good sequence. Again, those are sustained sequences, but, but everybody is affectless and they, they speak to each other, frankly, as if uh, to you know, to take a phrase from St. Augustine, is if they're already experiencing death in life. Mm. They're so, dead already. So All the characters is... are dead. And uh, so what's to contemplate about death? So this is obvious. I mean, this is clearly a self-conscious style that the director is looking to uh, promote and affect in this movie, this deadpan, lifeless delivery of lines and a really flat characterization. And I think that it is ultimately to the movie's detriment. I don't understand why that is a way that would engage an audience with a story. But I do think that there are moments of that, that I kind of emotionally connected with a story that were not just the gallows humor bits, but moments when this deadpan resignation gives way to an authentic and kind of unexpected connection between characters who've otherwise been completely separated by circumstance and by own kind of self-imposed degradation. For example, in the the second vignette, which involves this somewhat de- depressive uh, veterinarian who follows around a former middle school classmate who is a heroin addict, but also who is uh, the son of a recently deceased kind of alcoholic father, and he's trying to find his father's siblings. He seeks out his own sibling to tell you know, his brother that their father has died. And this is the first movie I've ever seen with uh, two actors with Down syndrome. Um, and that is not, uh, it's not an explicit part of the story, but it's also not necessarily played for laughs. There are just characters in this movie who had Down syndrome. And I thought that was an interesting choice. And I thought I kind of commend the movie for that. But the, that scene, the end of that second vignette, when the the brother, the addict, tells his brother with Down syndrome that the father has died. And they hug, and they cry, and they talk about their own struggles with addiction and the own deception that the father has kind of issued on one of the sons and has hidden from the other son. I found that to be you know, a re- an, an emotional moment in a movie that otherwise seemed to trample upon emotion in its approach that said, this is a like dry subject matter and we're or this is a, a terrible subject matter and we're going to deal with it in a really dry way um did that did that scene affect you at all w- was there any kind of emotional connection at any point whether or maybe in ellen burston's kind of frantic desperation at the end of the movie where she thinks you know i actually am gonna die i can no longer sit back and be resigned i'm, I'm right, panicking right no i, enjoy, I and, enjoyed the scene you're describing um uh, uh talking to the uh, autistic brother um, I mean, I guess what I'm trying the, to understand uh, is how they how does that dead does that ten, deadpan style accentuate the emotional moments? D- does it play off of it in any way, or is it just we wish that there was a real depiction of people and then uh, emotional well, what's moments? telling about the about the about the back and forth that you just described is that that's one of the few scenes where uh, 
the actor, who's the actor who plays the uh, the the regular brother? Kieran Culkin. Is his name. So where that the Kieran Culkin character speaks with affect. It's as if in the presence of his autistic brother, he has to he has to get out of his own anomie, and uh, he he talks like a normal person, um, an empathetic normal person, as opposed to an affectless person. Maybe that's one of the reasons why you connected with it. I also thought that the sequences when Danny DeVito was losing his job. Um, and he describes his screenplay, uh, maybe because I've got a, I've got a script out there that I'm worried about. I identified with this, but you know, he, he's so desperate about his script and, um, he describes how we wanted to tell something that was true and meaningful and in, uh, from the heart. But and then I had to add the mafia, <laughs> uh, you know, it's both the send up of, um, of, you know, film school and screenwriting, but also, um, you know, you sense, you sense his, um, uh, there's a kind of emotional depth there, but then it all kind of dies when he ends up, uh, turning wiener dog into a, uh, into like a, a jihadi dachshund or something. <laughs> Dressed he, uh, which, in a little yellow is, tutu. Okay. He buys a little yellow tutu. God knows why. Cause he's losing it. And then, uh, on top of the tutu, he puts, uh, you know, C4 explosives, and that was very funny. I laughed out loud. If there, if this movie has, if if a if a circular script can be said to have a turning point, I mean that's the turning point. Well, that and that is also the one vignette that has a punchline because this character's mantra is the key to screenwriting are two questions: what <laughs> if, and then, and then, then what? Exactly <laughs> so, right. So he imagines his own. You know, he puts into reality a what if. What if a dog showed up with explosives at yeah. film school? These had so little. What, right? Every these the little five or ten minute pieces have a lot of uh, individual charm, and each one could sort of win a win an award in its own right in many ways. But I just, uh, you know. When I was thinking about what this reminded me of, it, 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 I was saying, thinking to myself, if we were living in a less kind of cinema visual time, you know, this Todd Solons with this guy's sense of humor. I mean, he really, in many ways, is related to people like Oscar Levant and uh, Lenny Bruce, kind of the Louis Black who's still around. This really mordant, I mean, uh, ink black humor uh, with no no windows of hope, and uh, and you you keep on banging on that long enough and you just kind of have to just uh, either, uh, you know, go to the bar or just laugh. Lucy, you came to the movie about about halfway through and really after the narrative importance of the dog had begun to dwindle. I mean, in the first half, the dog is literally passed from hand to hand and that's how we get the segues between characters and vignettes. But in the latter half, there's much more ambiguity or perhaps lack of screenwriting or something that connects the the dog to the different vignettes. But I wonder what you think about the use of a dog, an animal, a pet, as a like symbolically charged kind of thing on screen that is meant to represent either concerns about death or perhaps innocence in the face of death. But did you what what do you think of that idea of using a dog as a trope for getting at at larger issues this movie's concerned with? Yeah, um, I and I can see Alan wants to hop in too, so I'll. I'll... I just wanted to make a dog noise. <laughs> you can, Alan. It's... Maybe sing the song in the background. There's a great original song for this movie. There is. There is. Um, yeah, yeah. I I thought it was perfectly successful. Um, I mean, maybe because I I found the narrative structure a bit like a dog chasing its tail, <laughs> and you know, and it it never quite 
catches up and it's not that much fun to watch after the first five minutes. Um, but thoroughly entertaining for those first five. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, this is something that comes up, uh, in literature, but also in art history. You know, you see the dog from at least early modern art history onwards. If you're thinking of the Western canon and usually it's representing not death, you know, that's like the, the skull, Adam's skull. Um, but fidelity and, and all of these things that are bound up with fidelity. And and so do I think that the filmic um, sort of conflation of a, a symbol that stands for loyalty and fidelity and, a, you know, a, a symbol that stands for death and then like the animal impulse on top of it all is interesting? Sure, I think it's interesting. I don't think the director did that much with it. I'm, I'm so no. glad that you, uh, Alan, go for it. I'm 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 making the uh, your paws. The, the, uh, my paws are up. I'm begging to make a canine comment here, and that is that heel, heel, <laughs> heel. <laughs> the the comment is that one of the ironies of the movie is that whereas dogs dogs in in other kinds of films, I'm thinking of Rin or TV Rin Tin Tin Lassie. I don't know what um, movies come to mind, but they're characters. They have personalities and. You know, you know the, fidel- the fidelity that uh, that uh, Lucy is mentioning. These things um, are evident. Now, this dog really is has no personality whatsoever. You don't get to know the dog. The dog is here. The dog gets has diarrhea. Has a long tracking shot of this dog's diarrhea. <laughs> And uh, you know that is going to win the whatever the award the award is for like worst scenes in movies, but. Uh, and the dog gets sick. The dog almost dies, but it's just a dog. And and then when the dog it gets splatted on the highway, when the, like a like a huge sixteen wheeler splats it, my first thought was, did they do this? Because it was really wonderfully done the way they killed the dog. But that's sort of the Buddhist point. The dog is the dog was born. The dog had a role in this person's life, in the boy's life, in Greta Gerwig's life, and in everybody's life. And then the dog dies. So maybe there's maybe maybe there's some profound Buddhist point about impermanence that this dachshund embodies that we're all missing, Tom. I, I actually I don't know if it's just Buddhism. I think there's a bit of a crucifixion element to the dog as well, right? We have this one. I was thinking of like Dostoevsky's The Idiot or something, where you have a character who is the embodiment of innocence coming down to uh, you know p- potentially offer some kind of hope to all of these characters who are so clearly desperate for something to, to get their, their blood boiling in any way. And then at the end, I'm so glad that you brought up uh, the art history connection, Lucy, because that's where this movie ends. Um, we don't end with the dog enabling people to have like a productive conversation about death. We, we end with the dog not only run over and killed, but then embalmed and stuffed and mounted and put in an and art automated. show and automated and commodified in a way that, you know, Damien Hirst perhaps is the most reprehensible example of, of modern <laughs> arts. But this is, I think Todd Sons is saying this, you know, for a movie about the struggles of talking about death, this is where we end up. Not a conversation about death, but prettying up something that has died to make it look like it's alive in a really uncanny valley, unsettling kind of way. I mean, I love the <laughs> fact that this movie was made. It's gutsy about all these kinds of things. And we're and there. obviously, there's a lot to talk about the more you talk about it. But the viewing experience is, it's, is, it's is, is depressing, folks. Um, a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit depressing that you bring up a very good point, Tom, which is, 
the the most redeeming parts of this movie is when the director is just taking shots at a very specific kind of humanity. And so I'm I'm talking about you know the the student who goes in and he's freaking out because he can't make a film about identity politics because he's just read Epistemology of the Closet, which is you know Eve Sedgwick's like groundbreaking book where she kind of comes out in the middle of the book and makes this big admission to her readers about having cancer. And, you know, it's it's like it's a book that you read if you're in theory courses. It's not a book that you read if you're just like an average member of humanity, though. So we're talking about that. We're talking about people for whom the measure of their success is being published in like a 200 word blurb in art forum. And I, I mean, I found those hits like really spot on and really funny because that's the world I lived in for a very long time. Um, Okay, so Lucy, what's the point of this particular vignette where uh, Greta Gerwig and... um, Kieran Culkin. I'm afraid Lucy didn't see this one, but you can run it by her anyway. Kieran Culkin, they're they're in the guy's VW van and they pick up a couple of... uh, a family of Mexican immigrants and they they take them part of their journey and, you know, they have a few comments about the dog. Nothing much happens as usual between the parties. And then... When they get off and they say goodbye, this is the exchange I noted down. I mean, I love this exchange, but I wonder if it belongs in some kind of uh, weird uh, Dada poem instead of the movie. (laughs) The exchange is, oh, the Mexican guy, as they say thank you, says, America is just so lonely and it's so hard to lose weight. (laughs) Boom. Yeah. I mean, and that's pretty much the character of a lot of the interchanges. Yeah. So... You know, it's one thing when that kind of thing is done as an exploration of the kind of zeitgeist and the craziness uh, uh, going on in the film school sequence. But I don't get what that's supposed to be about. I I think that, well, unless you understand, I have an idea about it. Uh, you can go. I mean, for for me, it, it was, again, returning to the question of affect. And I think the director made a choice to have things delivered with a very, very flat affect for a lot of the time. You know, I'm thinking of the scene where the disenchanted film professor is meeting with his doctor and the doctor says, you're a ticking time bomb. And if you're not familiar with the delivery style of the movie already, you think, boy, is this a non-unionized actor giving these lines. Um, so so again, that's what I think, that that you have sort of this like flat affect and ultimately it doesn't work. But Tom... What, but people don't talk uh, like that with each yeah. other. Well, they, I was going to say that... And in, to what end are they talking that way? I mean, this movie, from, from vignette to vignette, I think is about the ways that people avoid having candid conversations about death and also about other things that uh, seriously disrupt their physical or mental health. And there, that line, I think, is... I think it's written because it has an an odd, almost surreal sound to it, but it's kind of in line with the idea of this intense isolation that I feel in modern America. The way that I cope with it is uh, through the ways that this culture presents as like adequate coping mechanisms, which is uh, eating a lot and taking poor health of my body. And therefore, it's inevitable that one set of depression that's result, you know, a result of more existential concerns results in whether it be heroin addiction of one character, whether it be um, completely... Right, right. But but this movie crystallizes among the worst ways to deal with these questions. It doesn't... Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if to say um, uh, there are other ways to deal with it. I mean, I mean, the opening sequence, for example, I found, you know, maybe as a parent, I just found it horrific. I don't understand how Tracy Letts and whoever the actress... Julie Delpy. 
Yeah, who uh, they this this the, the way they talk to this kid and answer this kid's questions about life and death, and what what happened to, uh, I mean, there's one sequence where they're they're riding to get the dog spayed, and the kid asks, "What's God? What's death? What's spaying?" And she answers in this kind of chirpy, um, non-empathetic, um, you know, vaguely off kilter, sometimes incoherent way. And why would a, why would she talk that way? I mean, there are parents who are totally inadequate in dealing with that, but but it kind of sets a tone for for highlighting um, the the worst attempts or the most I- I, uh, inadequate attempts to deal with difficult questions. I mean, there it, 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 one of the dogs that the mother was explaining to the little boy recovering from leukemia. Uh, the the reason the the dog had to be spayed was that she was raped by a dog named Mohammed. <laughs> we should say that the dog Mohammed the, the dog's name was raped was named croissant yeah <laughs> right? so croissant is a france raped by uh-huh. muhammad you know well these a, characters are not role models and i don't think that Solomon's is pretending that they no, are but in he's fact throwing, but he's but, but he's but he's throwing down these uh, gauntlets so he's just he's just kind of i don't know it's there's there's a kind of uh a jean provocateur quality here that seems to me to be uh you know he's too much of it yeah uh, I think there's definitely a role for that in art and filmmaking, and I appreciate it's one of those movies where we, I appreciate it exists, but whew, in terms of sitting an hour and a half and watching it, it's a bit of a slog. Uh, but and it, and it does, and if you have popcorn and you watch these uh, uh, a lot of these uh, sequences of the dog's diarrhea, you have <laughs> stuff to take home. But the monologue about croissant I found really entertaining, so I'm glad we brought that up. But Alan and Lucy, thank you so much for seeing this thank movie. You, Tom. <laughs> And uh, and for talking about it. Thank, Thank you, Tom. You. Okay, coming up next is Alicia's Cocktail Hour, and we'll catch up with you next week for another episode of Deep Focus. <laughs>